Welcome to the Rise Network podcast show, a podcast dedicated to help you reach your dream lifestyle through investing in real estate. We're going to be sitting down with new, intermediate, and experienced investors to talk all about real estate and how it has changed their lives. If you're looking to scale your portfolio or even just get into real estate investing, you're in the right place. Make sure to tune in. What's going on, everyone? Welcome to the Rise Real Estate Investing Podcast with your host, Mayu Thaba and Austin Ye. How's it going, Mayu? <laughs> going good, man. Going good. Uh, I, 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 I held, held it down last week, but uh, uh, one, of our, one of our worst episodes, but you know, we'll just, uh, <laughs> no, I'm talking shit. I actually know how I did, but uh, doing good, man. How are you? That's how I know you didn't listen to that shit because that was not one of the worst episodes. I fucking crushed that preamble, dude. Did you actually? I didn't know what you did. <laughs> no, no. It was lonely without you, man. Welcome back. Uh, <laughs> things are good. I just came back from a networking event yesterday. It's been a fucking while since I've been out networking. I know that you go out quite often, right? Like being yeah. like you're coaching with uh, Corey or you're one of yeah. Corey's coaches. So like by nature, you go out to a ton of events. For me, not not so much. I've been sort of, I only really go to Rise events and maybe one or two other events, but yeah, I want to put myself back out there again. It's nice connecting with other investors. Had a lot of interesting conversations um, with people. Talked with some private money lender and they were saying that they lent some money to a developer, um, big developer, and that big developer, and by big developer, I don't mean social media developer. I mean like legitimately big developer, right? like hundreds of millions to billion in completion value of assets. Interesting. And the developer went belly up uh, so there's a huge sort of lawsuit against that developer and that developer had to sell their house, their primary resident, because there was also like personal guarantees on some of these loans. Yeah. Uh, so it's a little bit of a, it's a little bit of a shit show. That's interesting, man. Um, well, I mean, the developers had been going belly up, like it's kind of nasty. There was, I'm trying to remember who it was. There's someone in the news, whatever. I can't remember who so it was. The, the guy named Sam something, the guy like the developer for the one. The one? Uh, n- no, that was a young and blue or something like that, right? That guy went right. in a yeah. couple of months. Yeah. Um, and then there was another one as well. Like uh, they collected a bunch of like deposits as well. And like, so now they're going belly up on like a lot of projects that just essentially aren't going to be completed. But it's interesting, man, because I think it was one thing when it was COVID related. Now the developers are renewing into like a higher rate, but also the construction lenders are trying to exit the game. So a lot of them just aren't renewing unless there's been like actual progress being made. But it's not like we've had, because in COVID, it was one thing, right? Like construction costs kept going up. So like that kind of makes sense. Projects become unviable anymore, right? And you exit and there was a lot of sketchiness going on. I don't think it's the same thing happening now, but it's more so just like lenders pulling back or pulling out of the game altogether. That's forcing people into, uh, uh, and asset values aren't going up anymore, right? Because right. on renewal, you still get charge fees and all that kind of stuff. I mean, the numbers aren't, aren't penciling out, right? For like some of these developers, in order for them to make money, they might have to sell at 12, 1300 a square foot. And if it's not in downtown Toronto, there's really no appetite of buyers, right? So that's why we're seeing record low housing starts. Yeah. Because the numbers aren't penciling out. And even if they pencil out, there's just not the appetite of buyers to rush in and buy these deals. Yeah. And for anyone that doesn't know, a lot of this development stuff is based on like a speculated, like as if complete valuation, right? Which um, like I had a client, they had a, a parcel that was valued at 30 million back in like 2022. And then it went into foreclosure and we were trying to get it, uh, we were trying to get an exit done before it went into foreclosure, but it wasn't possible for him. And then it ended up going to foreclosure. Foreclosure itself, for I think it was $12 million. So that one sold for 12 million. And, and so that's a huge haircut. And there's also been, you know, obviously a lot of news in the investor community for those of you guys that are in the know, or, or if you're not in the know, it's pretty public news these days, but some big investors that have gone, well, they're in a CCAA now, which doesn't mean that they're bankrupt by any means. It just means they have a court order protecting protection, them. right? Like they're fighting, they go for yeah. protection against bankruptcy. Yeah. And you know, when you think about like, why would the court really give that, right? Like I personally think it's just the sheer magnitude of properties in Northern Ontario that they have, right? Like it's something like 400 plus properties across, I think it's Sudbury to, uh, so, uh, you know, it's, it's not, it's not listed all the areas, just in case people try to figure it out. But, you know, three small markets, even if we use Sudbury as an example, if one fourth of the properties, that's a hundred properties were to hit the market, even around the same time, that would have a pretty drastic impact on those localities, right? So I think it's going to be really interesting to see how they kind of trickle out these 
if the foreclosure does happen or a power sale does happen, it's going to be interesting to see kind of how that trip goes out. And there's a lot of other big investors, social media investors and non-social media investors, right, that are definitely struggling quite a bit. Yeah. And as much as I, I'd love to say, you know, opportunity is perfect for everyone, right? I think a lot of people, even the very few people have cash on hand, right? So those right. who have cash on hand, it's a great opportunity, but very few people actually have it. I feel like the ones that do have it are being very cautious, which That's fine. for better or for worse, right? You just don't want to miss out on an opportunity as well, but there's a reason they have cash on hand. <laughs> yeah. And, and there's a commonality between a lot of these situations, right? Part of it is, is of course, market dynamic shifting very drastically, right? We've been in this higher rate environment for the over a year. The first rate hike was nearly two years ago, right? So now we're starting to see things crack. You know how people are always just like, oh, it takes a while to flush through. And, and, and we're actually seeing that now, right? Like there's only so long you can keep rates high before it starts hurting some of these big developers who are very leveraged. But like the commonality is, is that fast paced growth, yeah, uh, highly leveraged and not cheap leverage as well, right? Like a combination of those three things. I mean, again, like I kept on saying leverage, 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 and that's very interest rate sensitive. So that's going to hurt a lot of people's part of the business. And you can't necessarily simply just exit these sort of deals, right? But like part of what I'm thinking is, is that you go to CCAA protection essentially because hopefully you would have some sort of exit strategy. Hopefully it's because maybe you're looking at getting some things financed or refinanced and maybe a lot of lenders want to go to power sale or, or you know, push, push them to sell properties or whatever the case is. And obviously yeah. you can't really do that. So maybe it's going to buy time to figure out a solution. But maybe I'm also being optimistic in the situation, right? Because like the realistically, I think the issue is, is like when you don't have liquidity, it's, it's very hard to get the liquidity now in today's market. And a lot of it, interestingly enough, like the private money is brokered by a single mortgage broker or like a single mortgage company yeah. or something along those lines. That's, that's been floating around. I saw Ron Butler tweet about it. Obviously, he's very opinionated. Right. He's, but he, yeah. He, he has a very different clientele, right? Like, I think anyone right. that deals with a lot of like investors um, is different, but the sheer size to to be going through like a single mortgage, I'm, I'm for better or for worse, I'm kind of impressed, right? Like, the sheer volume, right? The capital that was raised is, I mean, dude, 50 crazy. mil in prom note. It's active crazy. now. I can, right now. I can, can you imagine how much got turned around? I wouldn't tell you, I could not raise that, right? I'd be like, uh, five million? I don't even know if I'm going to raise five million in prom notes, right? Like, so, you know, it definitely takes a lot, but they were offering really good rates of return. So the one thing I got to like say is as much as, you know, there, there's obviously mismanagement on the investor side and there's the problem with investors for everyone. If you don't already know this is we're very addicted to the next deal, the next deal, the next deal, right? Which then means the back end operational process is, is a nightmare, is a mess. It's a very common story across a lot of investors, especially the ones that have gone under is just, they're always focused on the next deal instead of cleaning up shop in the back end, right? But as a lender, because we obviously do lending as well. And we've had loans that have ended up in, in hot water and are, are in tricky situations, but we're not oblivious to the fact that if we're getting a really good rate of return, there is risk associated with it, right? The yeah. moment, like when the GICs are at 5%, if you're at 10%, you're taking out a little bit of risk. If you're at 15%, you're taking out quite a bit of risk. If you're above 15%, you're taking out significant risk, right? And so it's just important to understand that like the risk has to be commensurate to the reward. I do know someone that has a first mortgage on one of their properties uh, for the investors that went under over this last weekend, but they're sitting at like 35% loans of value, right? So I'm like, you know what? Yeah. You guys will probably be fine. Like, I don't know for sure, but you should be fine, right? Shouldn't be fine, um, right. But the prom note investors, it's like, you probably had an option to take a secured option and you chose to go prom note. And so you have to understand that you get, you're taking a risk for the reward that you got all this time as well. Right. Not that I'm insensitive to anyone, so. Hopefully that doesn't offend people, but <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, it's just being transparent of what it is, right? It's like yeah. the higher the return, the higher the risk you take period. But let's just jump in today's podcast. Enough rambling from us. It's very timely for today's episode. Today's episode is with Samuel Castillo. Samuel is a insurance broker, a financial and insurance advisor. He's got 14 years of experience and everything we kind of talk about is essentially that. It's how do you mitigate risk? What, what is overkill on the risk side, right? Because the investors Insurance is ultimately an expense for a lot of us. So that's how we view it. We, we view it as a compliance necessity so that our lenders are happy, so our banks are happy. But uh, we talked about some of the insurance issues that we've dealt with in the past. Other brokers, um, what is a reasonable level of coverage as your portfolio scales up as well. We went to kind of, kind of quite a few kind of aspects of insurance within real estate. So it is very niche topic insurance, but Samuel is definitely an expert 
in this space. So I hope you guys enjoy this episode. And as always, if you do enjoy it, uh, drop a drop a five star review on Spotify or iTunes, whichever guy, whichever platform you guys are using. We are also on YouTube, so check that out if you guys want to see our faces as we as we kind of do. And, and if you don't do that, we're gonna skip next week's episode and then the week <laughs> after. Also, just try to catch a break. But <laughs> hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Tune in next week. Hello, everyone. We are joined with our very special guest, Mr. Sam Castillo. Sam, how is everything going, my man? Good, good, good. Nice to see you guys. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you as well, Sam. You just dated the entire podcast. Now we got to get this out soon. But <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, this is probably going to get out in like end of January or February or something. But Sam, uh, for anyone that doesn't know you, we recently met, uh, I think all of us as well, right? But for anyone that doesn't know you, why don't you give us all a quick background on yourself, how you got into space, what it is that you do? Yeah. So obviously my name is Sam Castillo. I've uh, been uh, in the insurance and risk management business for about uh, thir- going on 13 years now. And uh, so I've been uh, pretty much helping clients out with their insurance needs. And lately in the last probably three to four years, been focusing more on the multifamily real estate business. And uh, that we're growing that book of business. And uh, yeah, so we've been doing this for about 13 years. And about seven years ago, I took over as an owner. So I've been able to, to own the business. And obviously it's my baby and uh, watching it grow has been pretty fun. And uh, I also, the uh, last couple of years, I've been working with my brother. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if you guys met my brother, David, but um, we've been kind of uh, joining forces and, and growing the business as best as we can in the last uh, two, two years now. Two years now, yeah. Awesome. So I think it's a topic that the reason why we had you on, I mean, insurance is it's a topic that every investor should have just glosses over. For us, a lot of it's to got your requirement, get the cheapest coverage. Obviously, yeah. <laughs> that is not the case. You probably want to blow your brains out because you hear a lot of people saying that, but it is much more than just getting a coverage. And I think Mayu and I, people, our audience knows that we had a house go on fire and we have to learn the hard way why your policy and coverage matters a lot. But those who don't know what insurance is, home insurance, on a very basic level, what is it? And get us through like the key sort of terminologies before we dig down. So there's um, deductibles, coverages, perils. Why don't you give us the 101 breakdown? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, insurance is definitely not all built the same. And that's pretty important when you're, you know, starting to grow your portfolio, right? when you're first starting out, you just like, get me the cheapest thing. Like you're thinking about your cost. And, you know, at first you're just so concerned about the, the management and the month to month expenses of your building or your property. Right. So, and then things happen like that, right? Like I'm, I'm so sorry that happened. It's so unfortunate. And sometimes it does take, you know, a certain lessons like that in your real estate journey to figure out that, you know what, I probably should look at, you know, what kind of coverages do I have? Right. And you, you might have looked at all, all your whole portfolio and did like a kind of a client review with maybe with your with your agent and your broker just to make sure that this doesn't happen again, right? So yeah, it's not all in first and built the same. Once you're at that point where you're like, okay, well, you start to think about I have assets that I need to protect and what kind of coverages are there available, right? So the first one is really for sure is the perils, right? Like, do I have you know perils for you know theft? Do I have fire coverage? Typically in Canada, we're going to have fire cover, you know, kind of the standard and what the mortgage companies are going to, you know, minimum want you to have. Lately, we've been hearing a lot more about vandalism, you know, coming in and stealing the wire, you know, copper wiring, that kind of thing, you know, that could really set back your investment. And we've been, I've been hearing horrific stories about that, you know, take going up in your roof and, and stealing your car. So, you know, what kind of covers do I have is definitely something that should be reviewed. And I think as you go along, you know, you should be reviewing your coverages on a year to year basis because you might have a project, depending on how big your real estate, you know, you might have a project that you might've been vacant when you first started off the year. And then in three months, you've done your renovations and you haven't updated your insurance. So definitely making sure that your coverages are being reviewed from whenever there's some change in that house, right? Just to make sure that that coverage is, is available to you if something were to happen, right? So the, the definitely uh, your deductibles are another thing that you want to review. Typically, the bigger the property, the higher the deductible usually. Like if you have like a duplex, you might have a thousand or fifteen hundred dollar deductible. But there, there's definitely you know as you have a higher uh, market value in your in your replacement of your home, 
you may want to play with those deductibles just to lower the premium a little bit. So just making sure that you have a system in place, you know, you say, okay, well, I'm okay with a $10,000 deductible just to, to make sure that your whole book of business or your whole uh, portfolio is at the same level of deductible. So you're not getting any surprises of, a, you know, maybe a possibly a $50,000 deductible. And then all of a sudden you're claiming and you're just like, oh my goodness, I don't have really have coverage because land deductible is so high. What is a deductible actually? Like the definition of, of a deductible for those who don't know. Yeah. So how I explain a deductible is pretty much um, if, if a loss were to occur, um, you self-insure a certain portion of that loss. So say if you had a thousand dollar deductible and you had a flood for let's say 10,000, you self-insure the first thousand. So you pay for the first thousand and the insurance company would pay for the rest of that, that claim up to the limit. So pretty much is you take a portion of the loss, the first thousand dollars, if it's a thousand dollar deductible, you take on the first thousand and the insurance company will pay out the rest up to the limit that you have. So Sam, I think the, so I, I think going back a couple of steps, because I think insurance yeah. is, a whole, is a very broad topic. I think yeah. as investors, we neglect it because it is ultimately a cost center for us until not having the adequate insurance becomes another cost center, right? Um, <laughs> so from that perspective, I just want to quickly understand here. So there's flood, there's fire. Um, and what else is a real estate investor really concerned with when it comes to insurance? So flood, fire, it looks like death, vandalism. Vandalism. Liability. Yeah, liability for sure. But, um, you know, wind, wind damage, making sure that, you know, if there's a storm and your, you know, your roof is torn off that you have coverage. So usually, like typically in Canada, we've been having more, uh, you know, floods, more sewer backups. So there's a difference there yeah. too as well. So there's a sewer backup coverage and there's a flood coverage, overland water coverage. So you want to make sure your policy covers both sewer backup and flooding because there is a difference there. So you don't want to be stuck with a flood and maybe there's a, a body of water that has accumulated with the, the storm happening and then it comes in through the windows or doors. That's not a sewer backup, that's a flood. So you want to okay. make sure you have sewer backup and flooding coverage. And those are two different uh, sections depending on if it's a home policy or if it's a commercial policy, which is, there's a difference. Usually, um, if it's a commercial policy, they'll be stated in two different spots. There'll be sewer backup and flood coverage. And then on a home policy, sometimes it's called comprehensive. We call it comprehensive water, which includes sewer backup and flooding in the same coverage. But um, yeah, so those are the things that you want to mostly look out for is, you know, making sure you have water coverage, sewer backup, you know, windstorm coverage, theft. And that liability is definitely a, a piece that as you build your portfolio, there's more things that can go wrong <laughs> as you have more units, right? And how much personal liability do you think someone with call it five properties needs? Because this is how I look at my personal liability. I think each policy has, I don't even know if it's dangerous to say out there, right? but each policy, <laughs> let's just say it has like a $2 million like coverage per property, right? It's not like I have a blanket insurance policy across everything. Each one just has like a $2 million liability coverage. One corp might have like four properties in it, each one having $2 million, right? So like, what is the rule of thumb? Is there any rules of thumbs when, when it comes to figuring out how much is enough, how much is overkill, right? Yeah, like I would say like you would probably want to start looking at a blanket policy for your personal liability just in case. So you can add a blanket policy, blanket liability policy. I would say $5 million is a good rule of thumb. As you grow your assets, you know, you want to make sure you're protected and it's not that much of an extra cost to like add your, a blanket coverage of liability for let's say 5 billion, I think is a pretty good number. And then in your structure of your corporations, right? As you talk about your corporations owning properties, that's definitely a, a one of those things that you think, well, why did I get a corporation? Um, usually you do a corporation because you want protection, right? Yeah. Of your assets. So, you know, making sure that you have a $5 million, I would say $5 million now as we get more to, to a litigious um, environment and country, people are looking to sue each other all the time, right? And as you grow your portfolio book, you're going to have that slip and fall. Um, you're going to have that liability come up, you know, uh, <laughs> property damage or, you know, someone's going to sue you at some point, right? So if you haven't got sued, you, you're just not growing enough, right? Is this, is this what happens to grow your your book of business or your, your portfolio is that you have that liability concern. 
Um, so t- I think $5 million is a, a pretty good rule of thumb. I think everybody is that's investing, if you've had more than one property, even if you have just one property, $5 million, I think is these days is probably the way to go. Gotcha. Interesting. And, and to carry off on what you were saying earlier before, um, I guess we're getting into some of the nitty gritties you were saying about the flood policy. From my personal experience, I found that it's, it's, it's pretty challenging to find a policy that will allow for like flood insurance. I found that sewer backup is quite common, but not every insurance policy has flood. That being said, to take a step back, um, these, these the are good to have. No, the sewer back. I thought of the opposite, that sewer backup is like hard to get um, because it happens quite often. Right. Like, I don't know, maybe it's just the shit that we own, but um, like the properties I own, I feel like we have sewer backup more often. And I've never had a single like flood to the flood. I'm viewing like external, like tornado, like the lake water levels are rising and like my basement is out flooding. That's never happened. Yeah, no, my, what I was saying is, is that flood insurance is less, is less common. Not oh, every policy okay. offers flood insurance. Okay, sewer okay. backup. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Sam. A lot of them have it. But anyways, the point that I was trying to get across here is is that I wanted yeah. to understand um, what are some policies uh, or coverages that you see as optional, but in your opinion that you recommend to investors? Because there's yeah, you can add a million things and then pay through the ass, and there's really yeah. no point. You have to be very selective in what you can get, and also not every company offers everything. So that's another thing you need to consider. So yeah. for example, with like if a tenant damages the entire house, not many policies will cover the damages. Some will, but many won't, right? So could you kind of give us that list of things, uh, I guess like list of coverages that we should keep in mind when, when yeah. creating a sort of our, our insurance policy? Yeah, absolutely. And you know what, Austin, like that, you hit the nail right on the head there because some companies won't offer sewer backup or flooding or they'll limit your amount of coverage that you can claim. So as I start to grow my book of business and deal with people that have uh, bigger portfolios, you start to see some differences in the coverages. So some houses might have sewer backup level to the the policy amount, and some of them might only have a ten thousand dollar limit, and they're not and like a lot of the people aren't even aware of that. It's like, okay, well, why does the insurance company limit the amount of coverage that I can have? Well, that's because you know, in probably in two thousand sixteen, I believe they started monitoring. And taking a look at floodplains and making sure that, you know, if you are in a higher rated area for water, right? Like specifically what's coming to mind right now is this certain area in downtown Hamilton. A lot of insurance companies have pulled out that water cover. So you can't even get it, even if you wanted it with certain companies, right? So if we do offer it, you're going to pay a pretty penny, right? So, and definitely that that coverage is, is for me, my biggest highlight of when I review things with clients, I go, listen, there's a reason why this premium is higher and it's because of this. You know, there's a high chance that you're going to have a, uh, a sewer backup or a flood. Like, I mean, when I think about flooding, I think about Windsor, right? Mm-hmm. Windsor is a terrible area. Like th- some companies, again, they go a terrible area for flooding. Some, some of these, those areas, right? We, we've seen that, I, th- I think it was like 2016, 2015, Huge amounts of water, the body of water uh, in Windsor, just going into houses, right? And because they're in their floodplain, right? So for sure, the insurance companies are going to limit the amount of coverage you can buy. Uh, currently, right now, we don't limit the amount of coverage a client can purchase in coverage, but they're going to pay for that amount, right? So it's uh, going to be at a, at a cost to the client, right? So those two coverages are huge in reviewing with my clients just to make sure that they understand that you're either limited or it's going to cost you more. And, and just to make sure that you're, you know, quoting apples to apples, because I might get a, a client that, you know, comes with me with a quote. Our quote might be, you know, you know let's say $2,500 and they're paying a thousand, but that, that water coverage is $2,000 of the premium, right? Uh-huh. Just because they're in an area where the likelihood of a claim is, is extremely high. So, uh-huh. so water, sewer backup and flooding are two different things that in different areas, they're going to be a hugely different rate, uh, rate uh, differences. So again, sewer backup in Hamilton, very, very high likelihood. A lot of companies in certain areas, it's, they go by postal code as well. So they actually break it down into the science of the city and say, listen, you're in a very highly rated sewer backup area. Maybe not so much for flooding, but sewer backups are going to happen here. 
So we're going to limit that amount. Again, we don't do that, but you're going to pay more for that coverage. And then in a city like uh, certain areas in Windsor, maybe it's not the sewer backup as much of a concern, <laughs> but the flooding is. So <laughs> it, it, it's very hard. And to give a, as much education as to our clients as we can is every time we we set up a quote, I set up you know, 10, 15 minutes to review that quote and we go over deductibles. We go over limits. A big piece of uh, um, advice when you're looking at your coverage, especially as you go into the multi-unit investors, is making sure that you have replacement costs over actual cash value and making sure you know the difference there. On that topic of like the water damage, the sewer damage, all that kind of stuff, we've had properties that have had sewer backup. I don't think we've ever called insurance other than that one scenario with the fire. So at what point do you call insurance? Is there a math? to this thing or a rule of thumb that you recommend people follow? Because I think that's something that people see a lot. And oddly, I feel like I've also heard stories of like people calling insurance on like tenant damage. And some people say that's not possible. Some people say it's possible. Maybe it depends on the type of damage. Like what's the rule of thumb on when do you call insurance? Yeah. <laughs> you know what? That's a great question because I know like, like I'm thinking about our audience, right? So our audience right now are usually people that are now investing in their second, third, fourth, maybe they have a portfolio, right? So when you're looking at, you know, what is it worth it? You know, it's really tough because it's about what happened, right? So if I have a claim of, you know, the 15, $20,000 claim, does it make sense to pay out of pocket? It depends on your portfolio size because they'll start looking at you as a client, as your portfolio, and they'll start saying, okay, well, this property has one claim, and then they'll kind of average it out and look at you as a client, right? Is this client looking to put in claims? Is he claim happy? But typically you got to say, okay, well, if, if it's my first claim and it's a $25,000 claim, you know, typically I would say, you know what, it's worth it to put in a claim, right? But when you start looking at, okay, well, now I'm at my fourth, fifth claim and yes, I have more properties, but that insurance company will look at the relationship and, and kind of make a decision at, at renewal to say, okay, well, we're going to increase your rates at a certain amount. Um, yeah. Auto insurance and home insurance are two different things. So auto insurance, we treat clients, we have to register it with uh, FISRA. So our rules, our underwriting guidelines are made every you know year or by bi- yearly, something like that, right? So we, we have to go by uh, what we register with FISRA. Now with home insurance, it, it's different. It, we can look at a client, look at the relationship with the client and say, listen, yes, you, you've had some unlucky things happen and it's it treated differently. As, so it's not as concrete as it would be with an auto insurance claim. <laughs> yeah. So it depends on what type of claims too. So if you have like a client that has, you know, five water claims on the same home, there's a chance that that renewal will come without insurance coverage for sewer backup or flooding. Yeah, no, I, I've always been very hesitant to call insurance just because I'm concerned. <laughs> like the single family policies are one thing, right? But then on the multis, like the commercial properties, if you start to see those insurance policies go up, that's a direct impact on my valuation as well because it's an expense for everything, right? So I've just adopted this very hesitant approach to call insurance for anything unless it's at least like 20, yeah, 20, 25K and above, uh, which most things so far luckily have, have not been, right? So, so I'm curious then, so if, if that's a rule of thumb, you know, we, we obviously know single family policies. I think most like 90% of the audience here understands like a single family policy. They understand that you have deductible for, for, for water, for uh, any kind of damage, fire protection. And then you've got a 2 million generally or million dollar personal liability. How does that coverage change when you evolve into, let's take it one step at a time. So if we're talking about like a, a multifamily apartment building, four units and above, how does the coverage requirements in your opinion change? Because a lot of times we're single family investors that are trying to do an apartment building. And so we're taking that single family mentality. What are we not considering in your opinion? Yeah, well, there's a big difference, really. Um, when you're looking at a home policy, it's more comprehensive. So it will tell you the coverages that are situations that the, the policy will not pay out. So it'll pay out everything except for these, these this list of things, right? Maybe it's like squirrels get into your, your house and they eat up the electrical. So we'll, we'll have that exclusion in the policy. When it comes to uh, commercial property, totally different. So we will name what kind of coverages are are available to you, right? 
So one of the biggest things when you're looking at, um, let's say if a, if a client's going into a multi-unit family uh, property, things to consider, right? So things to consider would be um, plumbing. So if the plumbing isn't up to date, so if it's the old cast iron plumbing, a lot of insurance companies will be hesitant to offer coverage or good coverage if the plumbing is out of date. Now, the one thing I love about investors is that they are typically updating the property right away, right? So they're going in there and they're doing the Burr method. They're, you know, renovating. They're updating the, the basics of the home, you know, the copper wiring. They're updating the, the, the plumbing. They're updating the roof. They're updating the furnace, the boiler, that kind of stuff. So those are the main really questions when we we're asking about a quota uh, building is what, what's going to happen when you're, when you're done the renovation? What's going to be updated? Um, and, and those are things that, that you definitely want to consider when you're, when you're going into that is if I intend to update, right? Yeah. So those are the things that w- we look at it more uh, as a business, just like kind of the mortgages, you know, when you're looking at a, a multi-unit mortgage, they're looking at it as more of a business. You guys are going in there and you're updating. So definitely we, we love our investors. I've had such a great time and have a great relationships with investors because they're updating those, those high risk problematic areas. We're looking at insurance claims. Mm-hmm. So continuing off of that topic, and I guess you mentioned this a little bit earlier, replacement cost and uh, cash value of the property, how they could differ. Could you speak to that a little bit more and how that relates to multifamily policy as well? Yeah, absolutely. And this is a big piece because some insurance companies won't offer replacement costs unless there's an appraisal. So when you look at the replacement cost, the biggest difference is depreciation here. So Replacement cost is replacing the building and rebuilding it to the way it was without taking uh, depreciation into account. So say if it, it costs $2 million to replace, you're going to get exactly what it costs to replace that building without depreciation. Yeah, That's the amount of coverage that you're going to have. Most companies don't provide this on a multifamily, do they? We try to. So this okay. is a, a really great point. So I try to give my clients the best covers I could possibly give them, right? So how do we get to that point from underwriter being okay to give you actual cash value to being comfortable in giving an offer with replacement costs? So the biggest thing here is making sure that we have an adequate rebuild estimate. So mm-hmm. sometimes we'll get an appraisal done and it's an insurance appraisal or rebuild appraisal that gives us um, the like-kind materials that that building has to replace it. So we get an accurate amount because sometimes when you're looking at, let's say a 40 unit building, it's difficult to just input information and get an accurate number. Right. Right. So sometimes we'll get an appraisal and uh, you know, one of the guys we love to use is Myron, right? Like you guys know Myron, he's always been a, a friend of ours and we like to use him, but getting an appraisal that gives us an accurate amount will give us the ability to go to the underwriter and say, Hey, listen, we know uh, we have this rebuild number uh, with the materials that that's in this building. Um, this is an accurate amount. We have a report. We send it to them in a beautiful bow, and then we try to give them replacement costs versus actual cash value. So there might be a timeline there where you buy a building and then you're doing renovations, right? So right. those renovations and it's vacant. So sometimes it might be a certain amount of time where we could okay. Let's close this deal. We work with with a mortgage broker, with a mortgage company and say, listen, for this time being, because it's vacant, we can, we're not going to give you replacement costs. We're going to give you actual cash value. But as soon as you guys have uh, started tenanting up the building, um, we can start offering replacement costs and seeing what that looks like. And how does it work in a market like, let's just use uh, Sault Ste. Marie as an example, right? Or, or like Timmins, right? Where... Like shit, if, if there was a fire on like an eightplex that I bought for like 300 grand, but my, my replacement value cost is going to be a lot more than like 300 grand, right? So like, is it that if you're in like Hamilton, Toronto, Kitchener, stuff like that, the replacement cost actually probably makes sense versus like if you're in some of these further away markets, is it nearly like impossible to get replacement costs or is that not true? It just really just depends on the policy. My, I love that question. I get that question all the time and I get it even with home. Right. Yeah. Because true. sometimes I'll get a home from Toronto. I'm sure a home from Toronto. And then the coverage is like 800,000. He's like, Sam, I just 
bought this for $2 million and you're giving me 800,000 in coverage. He goes, what's up with that? And then at the same likelihood, I might have someone from Sault Ste. Marie or Timmins, let's say, like he said, and the, he bought it for 300 and the coverage is 800. He goes, I bought it for three. Why do I have it insured for eight? It doesn't make sense. So what we do is we try to get the estimate based on the square footage of it. So we ask specific questions about that property. So what bathrooms, kitchens, what type of materials? Is it like a high-end kitchen? Is, is it just the standard kind of a builder's kitchen, like, you know, straightforward kitchen? Or is it, you know, are you using, you know, marble? Are you using tile? Like what kind of materials are you using in this home? So we get a pretty good kind of estimate to what that would be. So it, it doesn't matter where it's located. The cost of materials are pretty much the same. So that rebuild cost is going to be the same for if you're in Toronto than if you're in Timmins. So that rebuild cost, depending on the materials, should be pretty similar. And then the land is pretty much the difference. Right. It, it just so I understand. So in an area like Toronto where they're buying for $2 million, the reality is the value of like that house might only be like an 800 square foot house bungalow or something like that. That's like on a hundred by hundred lot, right? So the, the value is really in the lot and the house itself, if it was to burn down, is very cheap to replace. Opposite in Timmins, if you're trying to get replacement value, the replacement cost to rebuild would be dropped like 800,000, like you said. Yeah. The cost to buy is only 300. Um, it's interesting because like that, I feel like would present this huge conflict of interest where if you're really up north, like, and you can get a payout of like $800,000 on some of these properties. Yeah. We'll, we'll go too deep into that, right? But it just <laughs> seems like it could cause, it could cause like a huge conflict of interest. I, I know Austin's got some questions here. I do have one quick question actually before, before we yeah. get deep on that topic. With all these like pre-con fires, like, have you seen it impact on uh, construction costs, development costs on the insurance side? Are they mandating like security or like any other kind of changes that people should People that are looking to get into construction should be aware. Yeah, builders risk, right? Like we see it all the time right now. Uh, people are upside on their properties, upside down on their properties. And it's kind of sad, right? You feel for them and you are seeing that moral risk come up for sure. So that moral risk is the kind of like the underline there, making sure that, you know, we're working with builders and clients that for one, I, I feel comfortable with. And, you know, we ask questions like, have you had a claim before, you know? Um, right now, definitely we're having that, those questions come up. Is there a 24 hour watch, right? Is there security? It kind of makes sense, right? If you're seeing uh, more of a risk, you kind of pay for that in insurance. So the higher the risk, the higher the insurance premium, it kind of goes hand in hand. So we have seen, um, in the last couple of years, because I'm getting way more calls, fielding way more calls for new builds, for properties that are bigger or different areas the insurance premium definitely is going up. So definitely it's, it's, we're making sure that we're on the right risk. Our clients are taking the precautions necessary to make sure that a loss doesn't occur. And you will get a break in premium if you're doing all the right things, right? Like if you, if you have 24 hour watch, if you have cameras, if you, if you're protecting your asset, we like that. That means that we don't have to worry about that claim arising because you're, for one, that more risk is you're taking care of it because you don't want to, you know, clients don't want to go through that, that claim. Right. So for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I know. And, and that moral risk is definitely something that we're, we're keeping an eye on and making sure that the questions are coming through. Is there security? Yeah. Um, just like everything else. I mean, everyone hurts when there's these moral risks happen, right? This, this moral hazard of, you know, I'm setting a house on fire. Your friends are going to pay for that. Insurance is a pool of money that everyone pays into to make sure that if anything happens to that that person, that they're going to be compensated, not compensated, but they're going to get put in the same place, right? That's what insurance is there for. So it kind of, it hurts everyone um, once you see this on the news that there's been arson or whatever, you know, it hurts everybody, right? It hurts your neighbor. So for sure, we're making sure that we're insuring the right risk and our clients are taking the precautions to make sure something doesn't happen. I kind of want to go to insurance with different sort of strategies in real estate, right? Because everyone does something a little bit different. There's student rentals, there's long-term buying holes, there's short-term rentals, there are boarding houses, so on and so forth. I find that a lot of investors are guilty of just telling their, when they get their policy put together to long-term rental, then they may go ahead and throw it on Airbnb. Can we walk through the different (laughs) sort of policies for different strategy? 
why it's important, how that may change premiums and costs. And if you have any examples, I'm not sure if you're allowed to share it, obviously no names or anything, where yeah. someone has lied about something like that and it, it's turned out to bite them in the ass. Yeah. You know what? I love this relationship that we have in this podcast because you guys have seen the, the other side, right? And I'm kind of in the middle because I, I, I invest in real estate, as you guys know, and I run an insurance business as well. So there's definitely the, like, it, it, there's, there's such a correlation and, and, and synergy there, right? So I'm explaining, like when I said, when you said, let's get on the podcast, I'm like, perfect. Like, it, it's going to be a fun time because you definitely have that, right? Like you have short-term rentals, you have mid-term rentals, and then you have long-term tenants, right? So how do I, as an insurance agent, like how do I kind of guide my client to make sure that they're covered, right? Because kind of protect them from themselves, right? Because they, they may get, they may go, listen, like this thing's going to be maybe a short-term rental. They're, they're not sure. And they want to get the best premium, right? So they may go, it's, I might live in it, right? So that you don't want that. You want to say, okay, well, listen, let's put you in a, you know, you may pay a little bit more premium, but then you have freedom with your property, right? You don't want, this is the worst thing that can happen. And for me, it, like I try to advise my clients because I'm in that, I'm, I'm in that real estate investing too. And, and I want to protect them and I want to, you know, make sure that they get the best premium, best coverage possible. So there's definitely that, that balance, right? Where do we find that balance between paying too much and having the right coverage and making sure it's there? Because stay in this scenario, right? A uh, client goes, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to rent it out to a family. Okay. And then that family, um, let's say isn't a family. Now it's four students, right? It's all yeah. of a sudden turned in from a normal uh, residential rented to others policy. And now you have four students or five students living in this house. A fire happened. What happens there? Right? So the insurance company has total, total, you know, right to go, listen, you told us it was this and it's not that. You have five or six people living in a boarding house and the risk for that is totally different, right? You have totally different risk when you have students, as we know, right? Like we've all been there. We've all been students. But, but, but Sam, what, you know, what, what's the difference then between a group of five students that are friends choosing to sign a lease together and a group of five adults that are friends signing a lease together? It's the same thing, no? Like you can get long-term uh, insurance policies for the five friends living together, no? I think. Typically, if it's not students, right? There will be a difference and a little bit of a difference in premium. It's just a boarding house, right? So typically when you're looking at a boarding house and a student rental, there is a little bit more risk when you're looking at a student rental. You can see all these movies. And when these movies came out, like the, what's that movie, uh, X something, it's like they had a huge house party and, 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 you know, they, they burn everything up. And <laughs> so you, you have that, you know, concern, right? You have that added liability, let's say someone, you know, you know, they have a big party, someone slips and falls, hits their head. Now there's a, you know, a lawsuit coming in. They're going to lose, they're going to sue everybody. So there's that added risk when it's students as opposed to adults, right? So there, there is a difference in premium there. It may not be that big of a premium change. And that's where for, for me is like, how do, how can I educate them to protect them from my clients, protect them from themselves? Because they're so scared that, you know, if they say, oh, there, there's students there, they're so scared that, you know, at the, the, the premium is going to be so much different than if there's mm -hmm. five, five people that are adults. The premium is not going to be that much different. And at the end of the day, we know how, how anything works in business. It all goes back down to the, to the client, right? So if, if it's more risk for, for you to have them there, they're going to pay more of a premium on the rent. That's mm -hmm. just the way, that's just the way it is, right? So it, it sounds like in your opinion, like telling the insurance company that it is a student rental is worth the premium. If it doesn't sound like it's too big of a premium, is there any implications on the mortgage? Cause I'm trying to think like 90% of people do not tell the mortgage company that the student rental, uh, when they get financing, not that I'm saying my clients do or don't, but, uh, yeah. is there any risk of the mortgage insurance company finding out the type of insurance policy that's on there? On there? Yeah. Typically when we send the papers over, like we don't, I, like I, I don't get into, cause I don't, I, I'm not a mortgage broker, so I don't get into that. I just, Provide the best coverage that I can based on what it is, and the and it's up to the mortgage company to figure out what's acceptable or not acceptable. Um, they get a confirmation of insurance, so you know for me I can't get into what the what the because I don't know that side. 
So for me, I do what we have to do and we do everything correctly. We, we rate it as correctly as possible um, based on what the client says to me. You know, and sometimes, you know, I go, listen, like I try to give them that advice if I start to feel the conversation is going a certain way because they're scared of telling me something. Right. I go, listen, you know, I try to give them that advice. And, and, and some companies don't insure student health, right? So, okay. so they, they may go, I, I have a student out uh, rental and they go, okay, well, you're off the book. They may say that there is a risk of that. Right. And that's why, you know, we make ourselves available. Like I make myself available to be able to offer that stuff. So there is the risk that if you say that there's a student rental, let's say, or a boarding house, or let's say you have certain, you're renting out rooms in a house, like a boarding house, that uh, insurance company may go, listen, uh, we're not into that type of uh, business. They'll give you enough time to find a new insurance company. Okay. Um, yeah. So there's, there's definitely that risk, which is, which is for me, I go, listen, like we don't get into the mortgage side of things. We just ensure things as best possible. And I give, I give that insight, right? It might be that, just that, that uh, point. Listen, man, like you're, you're running the risk of uh, not get, uh, getting a claim paid for 40 bucks a month or whatever it is. It's not worth it. Sleep good at night. And as your portfolio grows, you don't want to be like, how many holes have I left in my portfolio? How much risk have I made myself open to? It's not worth the sleepless night. Insure properties as they are, you know, sometimes you might have to take self, like, you know, maybe it's not worth it to you to go, okay, that comprehensive water coverage isn't worth it for me. That's the decision that you've made. Perfect. No problem. But at least, you know, right. You know where your gaps are in your portfolio with coverages. Um, That's kind of my best advice just to make the client kind of understand I'm protecting you from yourself. It's not worth okay. the $30, $40 to lose the sleep that possibly something happened to your whole, because that could take down your whole portfolio, guys, right? Like, you know, you have a whole fire and your whole, the whole house burns down. All of a sudden, you're selling properties to make sure that this thing's paid. And, the, and then it, it, all of a sudden, you're out of the game for, for something that could have cost you 40 bucks. It's not worth it. Okay. Yeah. Let alone the guilty, guilty conscience, I think, is something that I was thinking about the other day as well, right? But, <laughs> So I had, a, I had a question about like speaking on the topic of a thing, risk and something, some insurance companies not insuring particular, I guess, strategies or particular things with the house. Are there any sort of key features of a house that would make it uninsurable or very, very difficult to insure? One I could imagine is an illegal unit, right? Could you give us sort of a list of, of things that may be very difficult to insure in a property or almost uninsurable? Yeah, un- uninsurable. Like we, as investors, right? We look for the best deal, and that best deal is probably not going to be the best looking deal. You might walk in there, see cockroaches, and there might be some some work you got to do to the property to make sure you get the maximum value in a refinance or a possible possible flip. So things that you want to look out for is there is there underpinning work that needs to be done, right? Huge question, right? Like is the structure of the building? Do I need to? Is it effective, right? So when you're looking at that, like when you're looking at bigger projects, b- bigger, and I think as you get more skilled in this multifamily investing or real estate investors, you're probably, your appetite probably opens up to a lot more because you have more skills, right? Like you have the the construction guys, you have the skills, you've been through that, you know, um, maybe you've, you started with, you know, you just had to do the floors and the painting, and then you start getting a little bit more deep, right? So as you get more deep, you start to take more risk possible, right? So for sure, when I'm looking at a, uh, an, a real estate investor, making sure that you understand the risk of the underpinning, making sure that there's, stru- there's structural work, if needs to be done, you're looking at a higher cost and having that relationship with your, with your insurance guy, right? Like just go, hey, listen, this is, the, this is the type of work that needs to be done. We ask those questions, but this is the work that needs to be done. Um, you know, and I always suggest that you speak with us first prior, like get your insurance prior to doing some work. Like, don't, don't call, don't call. Like I've had calls like, oh my God, like I need insurance because the, the house, they're running into issues. Yeah. Right. And then you're calling for insurance. Don't call me when your house is on fire. Call me before. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, type say like, so as we get into those, you know, more experienced investors, Making sure that, you know, if there is underpinning needs to be done, get the insurance prior to doing any work. Um, so th- those are, are 100% going to cut the amount of insurance 
companies that are going to give you or offer you insurance if there's underpinning structural work that that's going to be done. Um, so that insurance, it's going to get a little bit, uh, it's going to get harder to get insurance on that. The premium is going to be higher. But once you've done that work, and, th- and typically, you know, time is money, right? As investors, time is money. So yeah. you want to get in there, get everything done so you can switch it to a different insurance policy. Do you want to do all the uh, all that work? Make sure that when you're buying a property, you have a timeline, you have the people ready to go, and you're not sitting on a property for a year on high-risk insurance. It's like time is money in so many different ways uh, when you're doing a, a property, right? Not only is it the mortgage cost, but the insurance cost, right? In a high-risk insurance policy for only three months as opposed to a year, that could save you 10, 15 grand. And when you're looking at 10, 15 grand, we all know kind of how to calculate our investment. No, no, for sure. And so, you know, before we run out of time, I just want to make sure we ask one question that I think is relevant for a lot of people in today's world, because it's a strategy that's popped up in popularity increasingly uh, recently. And it essentially boils down to Airbnb. And I think the argument, the, the logic is very straightforward, right? Like if you've got an Airbnb, you probably need some sort of insurance policy that allows for Airbnb. Where there's a little bit of gray space, curious what your opinion is on this, is if you're essentially renting into a company that will arbitrage it, because this is the model that most of us mm-hmm. have, right? Like we've got the property owned either in our personal name or in a corporation, which then long-term rents it out to another corporation or another individual or whatever, who then turns around and Airbnbs it. Me as a property owner, I have a long-term rental agreement with the corporation. I do not have an Airbnb, right? So right. I should have a long-term rental insurance policy. That's my logic. I'm just curious if I'm yeah. right. And I think a lot of people are probably in similar situations wondering what they're doing is wrong. A hundred percent. And you know what? That arbitrage is like, uh, it's a unique business that really just came up. It's not really that yeah. old, right? Like, and again, like for me, it's like, how do I protect my client, right? Like if they find out that that's the setup, there's a possibility that they go, you know what, my like, great guy, but you know what? You're at that risk, right? You're leaving yourself open for something to happen. Mm-hmm. And typically, again, like when I look at that, um, that arbitrage, when you're looking at, you know, having a management company lease it out and there's like some type of liability transfer possibly from Word. them to you. At the end of the day, you own that property. Yeah. Right. The liability is like, can you sue that? Can you sue the person that's managing the property if, right. if you're not getting paid out? Right. And, and I don't want, client to run into that situation, I'd say, look, if it's insured this way, if it's going to be this, let's insure it for that. It is what it is. Again, when you're looking at Airbnb, you're looking at short-term, mid-term, long-term rent, it always goes back. The bottom line always goes back to the client usually, right? You don't eat those costs. Typically, you share those costs, but the the cost goes to them. So if you're going to pay a thousand bucks more a year to make sure that it's insured properly, divide it out by all all your business, right? And, and then you can make sure that you're covered. You don't have to be like, okay, well, I'm going to have to sue it. If I don't get a claim ha- uh, paid out to me, I don't have to worry about suing their liability. And, and for sure, you want to make sure that that management company has liability insurance. So you want to have a certificate of insurance every year annually, added as an additional insured possibly to make sure if anything happens, that management company, yes, I want to sue is pretty much where you're, where you're getting at, right? Like, you want to make sure that everyone's protected. You have a, a policy to sue, right? That's the type of thing. And I don't want to get to the legal jargon of it, but typically you want to make sure if you're doing business with someone that in any capacity, really, that could affect you, that you're on, on as an additional insured. Mm-hmm. So just to round out this entire insurance talk, the claims process, right? Because getting the insurance is one part of it. We don't have too much time to get into it, but I do want to yeah. highlight it before we wrap up. How does the how does the claims process work uh, from an insurance point of view? I know Mayu and I went through one as we were alluding to earlier, and that was took us a year to get paid out. We probably didn't go through the most correct steps we should have. But in a typical sort of claims, what is the beginning to end look like? Yeah. So first things first is you want to notify for one the police, right? So if there's an arson, if there's anything in those that category of a claim, definitely make sure you have a police report for two. Let's say if it's a flood, make sure that you're protecting the property for any further damages. Um, you know, you could get sandbags. A lot of insurance companies will pay for that, actually. It's part of your policy. Sandbags to protect property from continuous damage. Call your insurance broker or agent. 
making sure that you know you're you're calling them in an adequate amount of time so that they can for one then the right people out to the house property to protect for any further damages and start to mitigate the damages that that have occurred so you know for one get get in touch with their insurance uh, broker or agent start having that conversation with the claims department notifying them of the loss or a potential loss that's going to happen and they will go through the first things they'll, they'll ask you a description of what happened the time make sure you're documenting that and then they'll they'll start to take the steps of sending um you know for for one is they'll send uh dehumidifier if it's water usually typically we're talking about water really you know like it's typically what, what we've been seeing mostly is the water damage so they'll they'll start to, to send people out to make sure that there's no more damage being caused and then you'll have communication with the claims adjuster to make sure that you know that you're put in the right place so pretty much when insurance happens we try to do our best to put you in the same place that you were in prior to a loss happen that's kind of the purpose of us as insurance agents and insurance companies to make sure that you're put into the same spot that you were at before. So having that documentation in place. Um, another thing that I always say is when you're talking about claims is make sure you're documenting all your content. So your content, if you have a content in a property, make sure you have a a list of of contents that you have there. Maybe you have receipts as the, as an investor, right? So having that list per property is going to be hugely important if a claim were to occur. It's an easy something that you can send out. You should have it in your email. Send it out to the to the adjuster just so that there's no back and forth on small things like was this there, was that there? No, this is the list of what I have. And each insurance company is different. From my experience, we try to do our best to get get it paid out in a timely fashion and making sure that you have a a list of inventory, let's just say, because if you're a real estate investor, it's called inventory. If you have an inventory of uh of things that you have in the building, and then you can kind of send it out to the adjuster and everything's going to be paid out more fast, so more quickly. So you, you definitely want to make sure that you have those uh, T's crossed, I's dotted. And um, yeah, that makes that everything easier. For sure. No, Sam, I, I think this is a good, uh, very, very useful episode for I think a lot of people that have never had a conversation on insurance. It's not something that we talk about too much or, or that we ever really worry about. So that's great. And, and you know, unfortunately we are out of time today, but I would have loved yeah. to and I keep chatting and uh, kind of listen to all your stories and advice there. But Sam, for, for anyone that's listening to the podcast that's a newer investor, what piece of advice um, do you have to share with them? So, so what I would say is um, when you're when you're taking on a an investment, just make sure that you're it's something that you can handle that is in your expertise. But you know, try to make sure that you're not going above your head and going too quickly. Uh, we, we're all like on fire. We all want to make our parents proud, and I I kind of read into your both your stories and. Kind of similar story that I have, um, you know, it's one step at a time, right? You don't get rich overnight, especially in this market. Make sure that you're taking your time to look at a property. Make sure that you understand things like insurance, cost. Oh, and for one, don't look at the other insurance guys' insurance price and think it's going to be yours. Yeah, okay? Especially so, in commercial, I think. I think that really yeah. happens in commercial. Fuck. People that have $1,800 policies and you're like underwriting with that and you're going, well, what the heck? Mine's like five. <laughs> yeah. well, I did three times more, yeah. um, you know, because that policy was 20 years ago and has been reviewed by the insurance co company or the client possibly. So, so yeah, so that's a big, big piece of advice is, you know, making sure that you, you understand that that price is not going to be your price. So when you're looking at your numbers that either they're more, you know, adequate. So reach out to an insurance guy that you know that you have, you trust. That give you not, uh, you know, at least a kind of a not accurate price, but somewhere in the ballpark, so you can kind of make your numbers work a little bit more and uh, get an accurate uh, cost. So just taking your time, making sure that uh, you know that for one, when you get into a, an investment, that you understand your timelines, you understand that you want to insure it properly. Don't get burned. Don't try to save on insurance. In the long run, it's going to be okay. You know, the cost usually goes down to your whoever's going to rent to you, anyways. And just make sure that you're you're adequately covered. Review your stuff every year. Um, yeah, awesome. Yeah, no, a lot of great advice there. And uh, I think with insurance, um, again, it's something that's easily overlooked. But one of the biggest risks to real estate investors is themselves and and, and doing damage <laughs> themselves. And insurance is an easy way to get around that, right? By just picking the cheapest policy and moving forward. The lesson that Maya and I learned, and hopefully you guys don't have to learn the hard way. But uh, great conversation here, Sam. People want to learn more about 
uh, insurances, they want to connect with you, follow your journey, how can they best do so? Yeah, so you can uh, follow me on Instagram. I have, it's Sammy, S-A-M-M-Y-E-I-L-L-O. Uh, and you can also reach out to me by phone. You give me a call. Love to chat with you. 905-978-1721. 905-978-1721. Or by email. I'll send you my uh, information as well. Um, and uh, yeah, I had a great time, guys. And um, I think we're going to definitely, if I can create any value for you or, or any of your followers, love, love to do it. I enjoy it. Really appreciate it, brother. Yeah, all of that information will be down at the show notes below. So if you guys want to contact Sammy, just open up the show notes. All that info will be there. And if you guys enjoyed this episode, share it with a friend, comment, leave us a five-star review because that helps bring great guests like Sammy on and it keeps us motivated to push out great information. And until next time, everyone, invest smarter and live better. Take care, all.